Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Uh, so uh, while uh, Maya sets up, I just uh, want to thank Tim again. He, yes, he did our whole show. It was like the synopsis. Uh, and uh, I want to uh, just uh, introduce our guests and then allow them uh, some opening thoughts. Uh, and if you listen to my podcast, these are not strangers. Uh, the man on my left, Robert Peters, State Senator Robert Peters, uh, has been a guest many, many times in the show. Uh, very funny man when he gets going and uh, very wise and insightful and <laughs> many good things. Uh, and a dear friend of my show, and April Prayer on my right, voted uh, best lawyer in Chicago by the Chicago Reader. How about that? Okay? <laughs> uh, and she's pretty funny, too, when she gets going. And I always say about April, if you ever get in trouble, if you ever get pulled over by the police, call her. And I will now get the advice. I'm going to get it right, okay? Shut up, lawyer up. All right? That's the advice. If you ever pulled over, ever get in trouble. By the way, Donald Trump is taking your advice, I noticed. <laughs> When it comes to under oath, he shuts up and lawyers up. Uh, so anyway, those are our distinguished guests. Uh, this man wrote the safety, co-wrote the safety act. I made that mistake once before. Uh, and April in her defense work has to deal with the reality of the system that exists now. So she has many compelling reasons why she believes we need uh, the change that the Safety Act represents. So I'll turn things over to my distinguished partner in crime, uh, metaphorically speaking, Maya, uh, with the first questions. Go ahead, Maya. All right, thank you guys so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to the conversation. Um, so uh, Senator Peters, I wondered if you could start us off with just kind of a basic explanation of what the Safety Act is and where it came from and how the Pretrial Fairness Act fits into it. Because the Safety Act is so much bigger than the PFA. Um, we're going to focus most of the conversation on the PFA tonight, but just give us a bit of a sense of like what the Safety Act is, what the goal was, and what the PFA is. Yeah, so I, I first want to say, like, in terms of writing the bill, I mean, I have to credit the coalition, and, you know, I'm part of that coalition, and uh, I've been part of that coalition, but I really want to give it credit to the coalition and, and the network, uh, the statewide network. Um, the Safety Act is a culmination of nine hearings, 30 hours uh, in hearings, uh, literally conversations with um, every stakeholder you can have out there from uh, criminal justice reform advocates to law enforcement in those hearings, uh, on top of the fact that those hearings are built off of um, a response that you know, the murder of George Floyd created. So we, we knew in the Black Caucus that we needed to act. Um, and so, and then even more so, when you look at parts of the Safety Act, some of those pieces of legislation have existed for 
five, six, seven years, um, and they passed only on the safety act. So, you know, you hear from opponents, they use a lot of bullshit about like how this happened in the middle of the night or whatever, and they weren't involved. They were very involved. They were part of the conversations. Uh, they were at the table. Uh, they've known about these pieces of legislation for quite some time, a large, many of the pieces of this legislation, and one of them, which I'll transition to, which is the Pretrial Fairness Act or ending cash bond, um, I mean, that comes from a kernel of organizing in 2015 uh, and 2016, and then uh, sort of really working towards legislation uh, in 2017, uh, and then fine-tuning and honing that, uh, that legislation all the way up till 2021, including uh, the fact that we, have, we had a Supreme Court um, commission uh, that literally looked at the entire pretrial justice system uh, with literally stakeholders from, you know, from law enforcement uh, to public defenders to judges. And so a large part of the uh, Pretrial Fairness Act came out of years and years of meetings and conversations and, uh, and, and um, ended up becoming a bill itself that ended up passing uh, in January of 2021. So I made a little slide that just covers the very basics of what's in the Pretrial Fairness Act, and if there's something missing here or that you think needs expanding on, please jump in. But the basics are that this law abolishes the current existing money bail system in Illinois, right? So the not currently, when people are arrested and charged with, uh, with crimes, they have, they are given, th there's three options of what can happen to them once they're uh, in front of a judge for the first time. They can be let go on their own recognizance and given what's known as an I-bond, uh, which means that basically they don't have to pay any money, they are given their next court date that they're supposed to show up for. They can be given a D-bond or a deposit bond, which means that they have to pay a certain amount of money to get out of jail as they await trial. So, you know, you can get like a, I don't know, $300,000 D-bond, which means that you have to pay like $30,000 to actually get out of jail. And then the third option is an, you, they, they, there's no bond. Person has to go to jail and await trial and um, you know, their lawyers can ask for that to be reconsidered at some point. Lawyers can also ask for their people's debonds to be reconsidered. But what the BFA does is basically get, it gets rid of the option to where people can get a money bond that they have to pay to get out of jail. So often now you see cases where people are charged with very serious offenses. There's very serious allegations against them. Uh, and basically it comes down to like if they have the money, they can get out pretrial, and if they don't, they have to stay there. And even more tragic is that a lot of times people get charged with very low-level offenses, and they get, let's say, a $1,000 debond, and they have to pay $100 to get out of jail, but they don't have $100. And people can spend weeks, months, years in jail for not having a very small amount of money to get out, and then uh, April in a second will ask you all about what kind of consequences that leads to. But so, under this new law, decisions about pretrial release will be based on the hearing where a judge will evaluate whether or not somebody's a threat to public safety, either to specific people, right, or to a community. 
Um, and whether or not people have the money to bond out of jail will no longer factor into the decision about whether or not they have to stay in jail as they await uh, the trial for their case. Um, there's various offenses that will automatically lead, like if you're charged with a, various different offenses, including all kinds of serious violent felonies or stalking or domestic abuse, that, that will mean you automatically have to go to jail. It does, you can't buy your way out of that situation. Um, there, at any point, judges will have the ability to change the conditions of people's release or to jail them if they are not already jailed. Um, there will be no more in, like under the current system, and the reader has done a lot of coverage of this, there's some people who find themselves on house arrest, like indefinitely. Uh, this will no longer be possible. Like people on house arrest will have to have their situations reevaluated every 60 days. And then the last important thing I think is that, that when people don't show up to court, which can often be for reasons like they could not get childcare, or they couldn't get a day off work, or they, the bus didn't come, so they couldn't make it to court on time. Um, right now, there's like immediate warrants issued for people's arrest, which again can lead to people being jailed over small potato stuff, which has cascading terrible consequences for them, their families, and their communities. Um, under the new law, there's like a 48-hour grace period before a judge can issue a warrant for someone for not showing up to court. So if you're half an hour late, you won't automatically be facing jail time. Does that pretty much cover it? Is there anything missing? Is there anything like important here that we need to remember in addition to these basics? No, I mean, I think that mostly covers it. I would say that the, it's important to remember that the pretrial release conditions are least restrictive conditions is very important part of the language. Um, and then uh, the other part is that I wanted to see. Nope, that's, that's it. It's Good job. Good job. Are you a reporter? <laughs> <laughs> so you have a question? Sure. Bob, I was going to uh, turn uh, to April uh, and uh, sort of put you on the spot with the first question here. Uh, I really wanted to follow up on the issue of uh, if one of your clients didn't show up uh, to his or her trial, I know you would probably read the Riot Act to that, that client of yours, because that's just asking for trouble, even if you can't get child care, et cetera, and so forth. Um, so what, what is the reality uh, for people who come to you uh, when they're getting caught up in the, in the criminal system right now, if we never made a change, if we didn't have the Safety Act, what is the reality of, of folks who just get caught into it? So the example I always give is I started off as a public defender. I was a public defender for six years. It was my dream job. And I started off working on the far south side near where I live on 111th Street. And at the time, prostitution was criminalized. And so we had a prostitution call. And we also had a whole bunch of cases from Walgreens for retail theft and Home Depot for whatever reason. So these people had all stolen stuff that were uh, $100 or less normally. And it was routine for the people charged with prostitution and those charged with retail theft to get a $1,000 D-bond, which means they had to pay $100 to bond out. And it is also routine for that person to have a court date basically once a month. So 30 days later, all the same people would be in lockup because combined, no one in their community would pay $100 to bond them out. 
And then a month later, they would all still be in lockup because still no one had found $100 that they could spare to bond this person out. So it became very clear to me at that time, and that has not changed over the last 20, almost 23 years that I've been practicing, except for we no longer criminalize prostitution, but retail theft hasn't changed, and um, disputes with your neighbor, and slashing tires, and all the little petty things that land you in misdemeanor court, you would still be sitting in county jail with people charged with murder, attempt murder, whatever else, because you could not pay $100. And on the flip side, I would routinely sit and wait in court for my case to get called, and I would see wealthy people who were charged with a violent crime. Maybe no one was killed, but someone was shot, or they were badly beaten, or they were injured, and that person their community, whether their community pooled their, their funds or whether they came from a wealthy family, they would be on bond while my $100 bond client would still be in lockup. And so it became very glaring that the wealthy walked out the front doors of the, of the jail and those who could not pay $1,000, $500, $200 sat and sat and sat. And because, and this is all pre-COVID, so now imagine you add to that two years of delays based on COVID. So what happened because the COVID outbreak was so awful in Cook County Jail, one of the worst in the country, because Tom Dart no longer wanted to be responsible for all the bodies that were dropping in his um, divisions, they started putting people on what we call house arrest, on electronic monitoring. In fact, the number of people on electronic monitoring quadrupled. But this is where it gets interesting. A lot of those people also paid a bond. So maybe you paid your $500, you've already lost your job because you've been in jail overnight, you had some you know, penny-any job in the first place, now you've not got no job to go to, you spent your last $500 to get out, but now guess what? They get to monitor every movement. You have to get permission to go to the emergency room. I had a very severely mentally ill client, not even a month ago, who broke his foot and was too terrified to leave his house to get medical treatment because he thought that they were gonna violate him because he was on house arrest. So that is what it looks like right now, and that's for non-violent offenses that I'm describing. Not the carjackers, not the robbers, this is for people who stole pampers out of Walgreens because guess what, they lost their job and they still got a baby at home that they need to take care of. That is the reality today. Those people still go before a judge within 48 hours of arrest. That judge hears a variety of factors and sets a very low bond, thinking the person will be released. But normally that judge never sees that person again and doesn't know that they sit and sit and sit, and they'll see another judge and another judge, and they'll still be in custody. Well, and so what about the people? So you mentioned the group of people that's like they don't have $100 to their name or in their community to bond them out, and then there's people who have any kind of money to bond out for whatever, no matter how high the bond is. But what about the people who manage to scrape together whatever that bond amount is? What are what kind of consequences, collateral consequences, do you see like for people's families to have to come up with that kind of money? Oh, it's, it's still devastating. So I had one client in particular, he was um, a church boy, and it had been for years, and so the mother took up a collection of the entire congregation. I don't even remember what the charge was. Took up a collection of the entire congregation, but 
He still sat in custody, I don't know, two, three weeks for this to happen, still lost his job. Mom was on very thin ice with her job because she's now missing court every month to, to take him back and forth to court. None of them are familiar with this process at all. So they really think, okay, we'll go in and say that this is a big misunderstanding and we'll be on our way. A year and a half later, you haven't gone to, chi you haven't gone to trial and you haven't pled guilty. But you're still missing work. You're still, you know, that hardship of getting to and from court. And yes, it's, it's common that my clients don't have the money. They call me April. I have literally paid for Ubers for my favorite client to get to court because she's like, I don't have the money to get to court. I don't have, I'm not going to get a warrant. I don't know what to do. I don't have childcare. Okay, just bring the baby. I'm literally in the middle of my trial, my own trial. I had a um, co-counsel. He did not have childcare. This was an aggravated battery to a cop that was some BS because the cops beat him up. And I had to leave to babysit his child in the hallway while my partner did the cross-examination of the witness I was supposed to do, but we had nobody else to do it because my client had to be in the courtroom with, with him. These are the things that happen on a regular basis because poor people have they, they can lose it all. They can lose housing in the time that they're waiting in jail. And remember, they have not been found guilty of anything. They've only been charged. They're sitting and waiting. And again, I cannot stress enough, now add to that two years of COVID delays for everybody. I don't care what you're charged with. So, okay, uh, now I'm gonna ask this question to Robert based on everything that April just said. Uh, so uh, I've been hearing stories about like that uh, from my whole time here in the city of Chicago. And then the risk of sounding uh, like the old JD guy that I am, I never ever thought that anybody would do anything about it because my general attitude about politics in Chicago is that nobody ever does anything for poor people, especially poor black people. What in the world changed uh, in the last year? Before we get to the political fallout, what in the world changed that a major piece of legislation that is pretty much directed exactly at this uh, group that's largely overlooked, ignored, or uh, demonized, what changed that that legislation would be proposed and adopted? I mean, in terms of the proposal, I mean, the organizing uh, and a whole lot of people in the movement um, working with people who directly impacted, sort of crafted the, the sort of coalition that first started to apply pressure at the judicial level, uh, particularly at Evans, um, and you know, ended up getting an order in 2017 um, that was a sort of win and a sign that the, the sort of movement uh, is, is here and can do some real you know, good shit. Um, and, uh, and then what you have, this is gonna, I'm going to talk a long time, so I'm going to try to keep this up. So Get comfortable. I, yeah, I was, like, I was like, oh, shit, you know, a politician fucking talking fucking mouth off, you know what I mean? Uh, that's everyone's favorite thing. I know you're all here to supposedly learn this, but I'm sure you want to hear my voice. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so um, I think the key part is that the coalition ha was huge. Um, I would say there were people who were organized and they could really fuck you up with direct action. There are people who know policy inside and out. 
There are people who know Springfield uh, inside and out. Uh, there are people who understood the politics, like the electoral politics, and knew how to do that inside and out. And that meant that you had a variety of different tactics and approaches that you could take um, to build some power. And then on top of that, there was, in fact, a, a crisis, right? So you know, there was a crisis and a demand uh, made for us, uh, especially the Black Caucus, but really Springfield, to act. Um, and the coalition, again, jumped up and said, we want to make this a, you know, a top issue and whatever is going to be crafted, right? We've been working on this for years. We've been having conversations for years. We have a commission. We need this to be part of what would become the Safety Act. And another important part that you know I, is important is that myself became a state senator from the, the coalition's a large reason why I'm in this role. And then down, you know, later on, Sharon Mitchell, who comes out of coalition, will become public defender, which I think is very important. But it's the fact that this coalition is exerting itself both in governing power and in movement power, um, and use that uh, to create space and an opportunity during that lame duck session that would lead to the Pre-Trial Fairness Act being part of the Safety Act and then uh, being passed, it's not law yet, if you haven't noticed, uh, a lot of people are saying some stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that's sort of like the story of, yeah, the moment. Well, and I'm curious just to follow up on that, like in January of 2021, when this passes, like where were, there were a lot of law enforcement groups that were part of these conversations. There were a lot of state's attorney's offices that were actively involved in this. And it wasn't just Kim Fox that was like in support of a bunch of provisions in the Safety Act. Eric Reinhardt. Right. So what was the general, like, what were they, those people who are now either staying quiet about this or coming out against it, where were they on the on this issue? Like, what were they saying in January of 2021? I would like to remind people that the State's Attorneys Association is saying a lot of stuff now, but they slipped in neutral on the Safety Act. They didn't, which means that you can be supportive, you can be against, or you can be neutral. They did not slip against. Back in January of 21. Back in January 2021. So, uh, it's important that you're hearing all this stuff now after they've slipped neutral on the Safety Act. Um, but I think it was it was not an easy fight to pass this bill. I mean, that was, I, you know, everyone talks about, oh, yeah, passed it in the Senate and, and nights, and it was dark. I was like, I would have passed it at 8 a.m. So, you know, like, I, I don't know, you know, like, there was a lot of reasons that, that we had such a negotiation. And then, of course, it passed in the morning in the House, so technically it really passed in the morning in the House. But you know, it was because the fact that you know people saw that we got this hugely transformative bill in there, and it is transformative. And you know, a lot of people fought it tooth and nail, try to prevent that from being in the Safety Act. But you know, I I remember, you know, I got thrown into being chair of the Senate Black Caucus, and like. Um, the end of 2020, and um, you know, I look like I'm 15, and um, and I was technically only two years as a state senator, and um, I was like, I don't know, like what, you know, nobody takes the chair of the Senate Black Caucus seriously, and what does this mean? And Kim Lightford, I called her up. I was like, how am I gonna, you know, how do, what do I do here? And she was like, people will take it as serious as you take it. And that was at that moment where I was like, yeah, let's fucking go. 
like we're gonna do like I, I'm this is this is I'm an organizer this is where like we as a caucus have been asked to step up and we have to step up and we have to push back um, and we have this January to make that happen so uh, April I have to ask you before we get into political fallout issues uh, when you saw that this act had passed, uh, or it, did you expect the fallout that it would have? Did you expect the backlash uh, that we've been seeing? I actually did not. I, I, I was shocked that it passed. Um, and I, I saw it. I, mean, I didn't know all that had happened behind the scenes until I recently researched it. And I just really thought it was a matter of politicians wanting to be on the right side of history after George Floyd was killed on film. Um, and I thought that that made it easier to slide it in then, slide it in after all of this hard work had gone on to get people on board. But I was surprised with the fallout because, but I guess I shouldn't be because this whole country loves to oppress poor black people. So I shouldn't be surprised that now there is this, I was very surprised by the propaganda campaign. Um, and the lies that were being told. I was surprised at how quickly it, it spread just in the course of a few days. I was surprised that Facebook that is supposedly known for shutting down fake news and flagging it immediately, conveniently let it slide for about six or seven days before they checked any of those things. I was surprised at how many people were contacting me and I was especially surprised at how many black people were concerned by the doors of uh, Cook County Jail being kicked open on January 1st and them being terrorized. Um, but when you think that most crime normally happens in black neighborhoods on the south and west side, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by any of that. And, and I will add a thing, because you talk about surprise. I remember we, we got the bill signing. And it's important to remember, we got in, in the January of 2020, the governor said, I'm gonna do three things, and one of them was end cash bail. So he made that declaration, which was a sign of like, we did a lot of work to get to the point where the governor in January 2020 held this huge thing to talk about how he was going to end uh, cash bail. But I think the other part to remember is, that I remember is that when the bill got signed, someone asked me like, how are you feeling? You know, you feeling, feeling great? Uh, you know, like, yeah, good stuff. And I was like, I am in pure dread. I was like, we got this now, and I'm like, they're gonna fucking attack it like crazy, and it's gonna be ruthless. And I was like, if we just look at civil rights history, you know, I always remember um, David P. Stein, who's like an economist and uh, th does a lot of work on criminal legal stuff, wrote about how you know, they, in, Credit Scott King was like, we want to do a full employment jobs guarantee and got a tough on crime bill instead. And so I thought, okay, well, this is going to be dreadful. And now we're just fighting to get uh, to January 1. And of course, you know, uh, the reactionary right wing uh, with a lot of funding uh, has decided to, to go to war on it because they can't talk about abortion, they can't talk about assault weapons, they can't talk about the economy, but they sure as hell can scare people about black people, so. 
Yeah, and I have a slide coming up with some of our most prominent propagandistic myths that we've been hearing, especially since September. But just before I get to it, just just I feel like it's real easy to mount a propaganda campaign with something like Illinois has a purge law, when on the other side, like you've got flowcharts like this, which explain in detail what happens to a person after they're arrested starting on January 1st. Uh, I've been personally like incredibly impressed by how much work has been done to get this information out there and get people educated on how this stuff will actually work. I mean, there is now going to be more deliberation, not less, about how bad of a threat someone poses to the community. Like, judges will have more time to make these decisions. There will be more consideration of victims, victims, uh, uh, how victims are impacted. Um, and yet somehow, I can't think of why, this is like not breaking through, and instead we have, uh, we have, you know, graphics like this, and the claim that starting January 1st, there's going to be such a thing as a non-detainable offense. And then they, you know, this, this stuff like this WFCN News, uh, which is very popular on Facebook, but is literally run by one person who also looks like he's 15. Uh, <laughs> it's just, this entire thing is being run by dudes who all look like they're 15. Uh, so, you know, this, this is like getting tweeted everywhere and shared out and, uh, you know, I just hope we could kind of like go through these myths and, and talk about why they're so, you know, what, how this is catching on, given how much information there is out there about the opposite thing happening. So, I mean, the first notion is like non-detainable offenses. If either one of you wants to say a couple words about that. <laughs> Um, well, there's no such thing. And uh, so I got sent this by several people, and it was a Friday, and I was busy, and I didn't have time to look at it. Everybody kept sending it to me, and so by the time the third person sent it to me, I said, okay, April, stop. And I ended up spending the whole day researching the Pretrial Fairness Act looking for that. Because I was like, that just, it just sounded odd to me. They're noting. I mean, I was like, unless it's that retail theft I always talk about, like, what else would be a non-detainable offense? And then I found out it was, like, essentially all of this was made up. And what caught my attention was here saying that the small princess, under this new law, after being charged with the crimes listed, those arrested would be released without bail pending a court date. No, the, the original one said they would all get probation. That's what the original meme says. And I was like, you're not getting probation for, <laughs> for armed robbery? You're not getting probation for a burglary? Like, and so I started digging into it. So no, these are just false. This is just something they came up with to scare people because they knew that the average person doesn't read. The average person doesn't take the time to do any research. They believe whatever they see. I'm real active on Facebook. But whatever they see on Facebook, and they're not going to question it. And instead, they're going to ask their one friend who's maybe a probate lawyer if this is true or not. Well, and that's the most research they're going to do. And I wanna, I wanna add that, I, look, I, I, you know, cause I know that a lot of people shared it and they like believed it, but actually, I think like, 
because people, you know, they might be working a couple jobs, they might be busy, they might have kids, and they want to get their information and get their news, and they see something that seems legit, and they're like, oh, well, you know, this must be right. And I want to give a benefit of the doubt to the person who's just trying to get through life and learn information. And I want to point out that the real enemy is someone like Dick Uline, who takes advantage of people who mean well, who just want to learn what's going on in their community and decides to pump them with horrible, horrible information. Dan Proft and Dick Uline are horrible, horrible people, and they don't even live in Illinois. They all bailed on the state, um, you know, and I think it's important to remember that, like, I, it happens that you might read something and you might be like, oh, wow, you know, that seems like that's going to impact me. And maybe you don't have the time to do research. So I just want to, I just, I think it's very important. Like, I get it that people, you know, you know, like my own sister will ask me questions and she's got two kids and she's, you know, working all the time. And I, you know, like I get it. And then you, the idea is that you trust Facebook and you know, TikTok to provide you this information. I think that's why we've had to really push back in it. But again, we don't have the, it's hard to have, the, we don't have the resources of Dick Uline. We've been able to push back. I think we've done a really good job. A lot of media outlets have corrected uh, this shit or have stopped even showing these ads. Um, and that's helped. Um, but, you know, it's part of my burped. That's great. It was very uh, poetic. <laughs> Maya, you want to take over? That's well, cool. Uh, I, what I, one of the things that I wanted, maybe, if, if you could say a few words about the level of involvement of victims' advocates in developing this and how the new, more delivered, deliberative process will actually be beneficial to victims of domestic violence or victims of crime in general. Because that's like a huge thing that's going on there. Despite how many times the network tweets out all the ways that domestic violence victims are gonna be more protected now, like it's still, there's a lot of rhetoric about how crime victims are gonna, you know, no one cares about crime victims. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the best way to put this is that um, Republicans and those on the right love to talk about victims, but when actually confronted with what victims want, they like, all of a sudden, like, they're not my victims. Um, and in this instance, when it comes to this bill, uh, the Illinois Coalition Against Domestic Violence called this bill criminal justice reform that puts survivor safety first. They were at the table to develop it. The network was at the table to develop it. Case was at the table developing it. Uh, I'm doing a town hall next week that will include the network case and a, you know uh, crime survivors for safety and justice. They were people who've been impacted by violent crime and want to create change. And it's a pretty large organization. They lead on trauma recovery centers that exist so that people who've experienced gun violence or their family has, they can go to a trauma recovery center and get what they need in terms of a whole variety of interventions. They were at, these people were at the table and crafting this, talking about this and building this. Uh, and it was, I think, it's a rarity. We're one of the first states um, where, you know, oftentimes, uh, you see law enforcement use domestic violence community to pit against, uh, you know, reform or change. And in Illinois, uh, you have to really give credit to the survivor and uh, victims' rights community because they they've come out strong. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful. I, I just want to chime. In. I want to point out two things we haven't talked about, so that are actually 
not so great for my clients. So like I said, this bill will be great for those charged with nonviolent offenses. They will not be held on that $100 bond anymore. So then the question becomes, well, what about violent offenders? And so violent offenders, again, who had means, would have been able to bond out. And I think it, as a result of this new law on January 1st, the public is actually going to be safer because those who would have been able to bond out will no longer be able to bond out. So if you're charged with an armed robbery, carjacking is the, I, I guess, the, the crime du jour, um, uh, carjacking or an offense involving a gun, chances are when you go in front of that judge for that assessment, now every judge is going to do their own thing, but chances are when you go in front of a judge, right now the judge is going to hear it's essentially the same. They're going to hear that person's background. Who do you live with? How far did you get in school? What are you up to? Do you work? Things like that. Do you do community service? Have you been in the military? All those things. Hear that from your defense attorney. From the prosecutor, they will hear if you have a criminal background. If you have a criminal background or not, they're also going to hear a summary of the actual charge. Was a weapon used? Who was the supposed victim? How did this come to be? And then the third thing is an assessment. Do they think you're a flight risk? Um, have you missed court 10 times in the past on 10 other cases? Do you normally come to court? Have you never been in that position? The judge will hear all those things. And so now the judge will not have the option of putting some high bond on you. Instead, they'll say, no, you cannot be released. So the choices will be not release you, release you on electronic monitoring, or that's pretty much it for a violent offender. And so I may give you a curfew, that's another option. And so I think people are thinking that it's going to be less safe for the public when actually people who are committing crimes with guns will likely be held, not released. That's number one. And number two, although this doesn't say it, what I kept seeing on Facebook was people saw this purge law and assumed literally that the doors of all the county jails up and down the state will be kicked open and everyone there who's a serial killer and a serial rapist will be released in celebration of the new year. And what people don't realize is the existing orders for anyone who's sitting, waiting in pretrial custody, those don't get revoked on January 1st. So anybody who's in custody who wants a new bond review will have to contact their lawyer, the lawyer and the person will talk, okay, let's go in front of the judge and ask if now the judge can consider different terms for your detention. So imagine all the people in county jail, even if they all apply, that's not gonna be a quick process, and most judges are simply gonna say no, now you're being held until your trial date. There's no bond, there's no amount you can post to get out, you're gonna have to sit. So I think those are two important things when people are considering safety issues, is that actually the public will likely be at least theoretically more safe. Safer. Well, I could tell you, uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts about this, Robert, uh, and uh, April as well, that when I listen to uh, people criticize the law, they always start off with no cash bail. 
And that's what the law says, no cash bail. So if you hear nothing else, if that's all you hear, that's your opening line, no cash bail. That leads to the Joe Rogan show where he reads off a list of every single crime that could possibly be committed, like murder, serial murder, and, and it's, it's like, wow, it's staggering. And in reality, of course there's cash. Of course they're going to make some people uh, stay in jail. They're not just going to release. It's up to the judge. You're, essentially, it's up to the judge to make that decision. But I know how this is an easy sell right off the bat, and those commercials that uh, Old Boy's been airing for Darren Bailey are an easy sell. Because as soon as you say no cash bail, the, the ball's in your court to sort of how make that explain that. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's also important to remember that WGN did a poll recently, and in that poll, when you just poll no cash bail or you know that end of cash bail or whatever, um, seventy seven percent of Trump voters believe it's going to make you less safe. Um, twenty five percent of Joe Biden voters believe that. So it's a very partisan belief at this point. And my guess is that what this is really doing is two things. One, it to suppress the vote in Cook County, right? It's not about necessarily suburban voters don't really care about this. Downstate voters don't really care about this. They they it's, it's there and they're like I'm concerned. But it's really a way to suppress it's crime polls highly in Chicago and Cook County. Um, and so it suppresses the vote. And if you look at some of these ads by um, play by the rules or whatever Dan Prof's saying, I mean, he's using he's had two black people do direct to camera ads. He's they're 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 very clearly sending a message of what they want to send to the voter. Um, and then the second one is. You know, we're, we always knew we were going to have to actually do some negotiation on the Pretrial Fairness Act. This was always known. It's the reason why we have an implementation task force with the Supreme Court that we've had for uh, over a year, year and a half. This is also so that it gives leverage to some of the worst elements, uh, uh, you know, in terms of like very right-wing state attorneys and all that kind of stuff um, to sort of fuck with that process. And so it, it was a dual track thing of electoral and legislative that this kind of stuff actually does. Um, for example, if you look at uh, one, if anybody got the newspapers of Chicago City Wire, uh, you know, it has two state's attorneys and it says it's going to be the end of days. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. That's a, that, there's a reason that happens and it's a reason uh, those people are seen as a voice of reason to the public. Um, and that's sending a signal to you know people like myself or legislators or uh, other advocates that we're going to be negotiating from a place of uh, you know deep deep reaction, and it's going to be people who want to try to actually reasonably make sure that this bill is implemented right, and people who may not even implement the bill in good faith when it goes into law, no matter what we do. So. Well, and today the the latest from Dan Prof, which was published in the Tribune, and. Uh, uh, don't worry about reading this, but basically the, 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 the whole shtick here is that he's citing Democratic state's attorneys, uh, including Jim Glasgow and Justin Hood and a couple of other people, uh, talking about how this is like 
end of days. Mm -hmm. The end of days thing is a Jim Glasgow quote. And this, this, uh, this, this uh, Hamilton County State's Attorney, he, you know, the, 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 the statements that Dan Proft is citing is like, you know, a husband who murders his wife must be released because we cannot determine the person poses a danger to a specific identifiable person or persons. Like, this, th this is what, I mean, on top of that, they, the, 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 this is not like fact check. This is like an opinion piece that's published. I, yeah, you know, I wouldn't even be surprised if this Justin Hood character didn't even say this, that Dan, Dan Proft is misquoting him somehow. But, the, but, but it, I just think it's an interesting kind of um, uh, way that they're leaning on statements by Democratic state's attorneys to undermine the validity and credibility of, of the legislation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real whose side are you on situation. Um, and, you know, I think it's complicated. Um, to give you an idea, state's attorneys are up in 2024. Um, and so you have to also think about this. Is there's the political component of November of this year. There's the legislative component heading into uh, veto session in lame duck. And then on top of that is the political component of 2024. Um, where a lot of these folks are going to try to use this as a launch pad to either keep themselves in office. And it comes with two tracks. I'm getting real deep in specifics of the, the mechanism that, that exists here. But if you're, um, particularly if you're a Republican, you don't want to have, and you, let's say you're moderate in the nicest way you can think of Republican. You don't want to be like, you know, have some like MAGA, you know, terrible lawyer who's like, you know, he's like, yeah, with keepers. Um, and you don't want that to come at you in a primary. So you're going to use this type of stuff to be like, no, look at me, I'm tough on crime. And then if you're a suburban um, Democratic state's attorney and you're worried about the general election, you're like, look at me, I've fought for your safety. And so it's really politically convenient particularly for state's attorneys to hold this position because it literally does three things. It can fuck with the election in November, it can fuck with the legislative process, and you can use this as a way to protect yourself, uh, particularly from the right in 2024. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's it's cold to think that, but I, I would, there's been nothing that has said that this is good faith, um, right? We have an implementation task force um, we had negotiations going into um, Lame Duck in 2021, and every time it reminds me of Charlie Brown running to kick a football and Lucy pulling it away, and then Democrats being like, I can't believe they did that. And it's like, <laughs> it's like no shit. I mean, like, it, 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 you could do like the domino thing from like Reagan, Cheney to like this shit. It's like, this is kind of how it goes, yeah. you know? Uh, wait, my I just didn't understand. Is, was this in today's Tribune? Yeah. I didn't see this for some They also there. accused Injustice Watch of being an advocacy organization that worked with Jim Glasgow to uh, help a person get out of prison. I mean, we I wrote a story about how Jim Glasgow used another part of part of the Safety Act to call for a resentencing of a person who was like a very very unjustly sentenced, but. They, yeah. So I just was this, <laughs> this an was essay, uh, an op-ed piece that Dan yes, Prof that wrote? Yes, in which Dan Prof basically just, it's the piece is composed of quotes from Democratic state's attorneys. Wow. 
about That's the interesting. I'm going to get your thought about that. Uh, so let me make sure I understand this, because I did not see the tribunal today. I humbly apologize to the trip. Uh, they ran a quote-unquote op-ed piece written by Dan Proft. Today. Is that correct? Okay. So think about this, uh, April Prayer. Uh, valuable real estate in one of the largest circulating newspapers in the state of Illinois was dedicated to a man who has just blatantly tried to exploit the worst fears and prejudices we, white people have a black, about black people in order to get Darren Bailey elected. I'm like... Every time I think the Tribune cannot go lower, <laughs> they go lower. So this is what you're up against, you know? I mean, remember when I started, I just never believe anything will happen for poor people, particularly poor black people. They just turn this space. It's like, let's hear from Donald Trump right now. Like, when have you ever told the truth in your life? You know, and this is supposed to be like linked to the truth or something like that. So how can you fight? pure propaganda if our objective sources of truth are turning over their pages. Are just printing propaganda. They are just print, thank you, are just printing propaganda. Um, I mean, all you can do is what we're doing is continue to keep speaking out. So when all of this first happened, so actually you're making me rethink, I was actually offered the opportunity to write an op-ed for the Sun-Times and I turned it down on the Safety Act. But, um, because I was like, who's going to read it but my friends? <laughs> that counts as something. <laughs> I'd read it. You want to do one. <laughs> yeah, so when all this happened, like, so that Friday I got bombarded with this meme, whatever, um, I personally took it upon myself to contact any media outlet I knew, wherever I had a contact, News Nation, um, NBC, ABC, and I contacted other friends who were media ready and told them to do the same thing and we put together our own little informal little task force and decided we were going to speak out and so we made some headway but how can you go up against this multi-million dollar obviously multi-million dollar campaign you got to have more bodies who are knowledgeable about this defense attorneys senators congressmen whomever speaking out and hoping that we can drown out the noise but then the other thing is you know, this is time sensitive. We'll just see what happens on January 1st. So on January 1st, either the doors of all the Cook County, of all the county jails get kicked open or they don't, and then somebody's a liar. So, I mean, then there's that. But in the meantime, all we can do is continue having forums like this, continue hitting the airwaves, continue getting on TV. And what was interesting, and I want to call some folks out about this, when I hit up all those different sources, because I'm on TV a lot. Like, I was on Court TV yesterday. I've been on News Nation like 20 times. I've been on national TV like 50 times in the last five months. And every news station, every TV station I reached out to, wrote a detailed pitch, told them who to talk to, told them to interview Sharon, told them to interview this person, told them to interview, they all didn't do it. Whereas print media took it on, podcasters took it on, and radio took it on, but TV, regardless of where they stand, they decided to ride this propaganda wave because it was more salacious. So that says something all about us, and we can all push back on that because we all have a voice. I want to add on the January 1st component. Like, I'm guaranteeing you January 1st, there's going to be like a Willie Horton thing, like immediately. Like, it's going to be, they're going to be like, this person did this. Yes. 
Um, my favorite story, they did something real bad, everybody. Look what they've done. The Black Caucus and all these Democrats. Um, but the, um, I always think about New York. So on January 1st, their bail reform law goes into effect, and the New York Post goes, puts like, you know, like a homeless black dude's fucking mugshot on the cover, and they say, he got out 154 times. And I was laughing, I go, so 153 in the previous law. You know, like, what are you fucking saying? You know, like, it's scary, but it's, it's bullshit, right? Like, it's bullshit. So my guess is, you know, and so I, I talk to the, you know, we talk and all of us who organize around this and we're like, these things come in waves. And the next wave will be January 1st and it will last through the municipal elections because the idea is to impact the city election. So you have to think like at least three, three months, three and a half months of just bombardment. Um, and you know, if Paul Vallis's newfound Nazi love moves into, um, if he makes it into the runoff, I mean, that's an epic disaster. So we can't let that happen. So, you know, there's just a, a lot of things to think about in terms of organization that this wave will lead into another wave in January 1st. Well, so we're, we'll open it up to questions in a second, but one more thing before we do that. So. There have been other states that passed various versions of this, maybe less kind of totalizing and, and progressive than the, the PFA, but we know the playbook. So you know the playbook. You literally just talk through the playbook. So if everyone knew this is what was gonna happen, this was how the right-wing media was gonna play it, why were you all not more prepared to like strike first or fight back or I'm going to push back on this. Go ahead. Okay. When we signed the bill, we traveled literally the entire state, did press conferences in Peoria, in Champaign, in Springfield, in Metro East. We did it in Chicago. Um, we put anytime anybody said anything, we put out you know, made sure to make statements. We had people, we talked about different parts of uh, ending ca or cash bond in general, you know, in op-eds. I mean, we did town halls. We had, we literally had a lot of conversations. We done, we did a whole tour. What I will say is it, it takes, people have to pick it up. We don't have enough money to go on TV. You know, my dream scenario, it's like we pass the bill and then you immediately go on TV and you're just like, we did this thing. Look at that great thing, everybody, and you get ahead of it. But, um, but also what happened that's interesting is that we came out of that, we did that tour, and then we, we passed a lot of bills in Springfield that's almost an extension of what happens January 1st. But I would say for many of us, we did a lot of work like talking to the, you know, trying press conferences, talking to the press, op-eds. Some got picked up, some didn't get picked up. And we just don't have, we did not have the resources like having, you know, if we can get a mailer in everybody's mailbox, I mean, that would be a game changer. But we got hit with someone who can literally just send out a fake newspaper willy-nilly. And that, that, that is an overwhelming experience and one that even though if we were completely prepped for it, we were never going to be at that level. All right, we'll take some questions, but I, I, I just have to follow up on that one because uh, this is one of my favorite topics. The difference between passing a bill uh, with Democratic votes uh, and then 
facing opposition. And I, the way I, the analogy I always make, it's the difference between shooting a shot in a gym and no one's carding, guarding you, and shooting when you're contested. It's a whole different game. And uh, so you're, we just think of the centuries of prejudice, fear, crime, you know, people's attitudes toward black people, which can be distilled into one commercial that shows two black guys beating up a white guy in a train. I don't know if you've seen that one. And no. it's like, yeah, well then, then they, I could ask you this one. So in the, and, and so that's what you're up against. You're literally up against that. And so having a press, it's just like, it's like Maya, this, what she showed in that demonstration. You mean this? This doesn't beat out purge law? Exactly. <laughs> you know, purge law is going to win every single day. And uh, Proft knows that. So uh, the added twist, um, the, this campaign is being done, uh, their anti-safety uh, um, act campaign is being done in the midst of this gubernatorial campaign in order to elect Darren Bailey and defeat J.B. Pritzker. That's their initial purpose and maybe to turn suburban voters in general against Republicans so that they can win the Lake County Supreme Court seat as well bottom you know the, all these uh, right yeah so I'm just I hate Democrats I'm just gonna vote for every R I see uh, and next thing you know abortions outlaw in the state of Illinois wait I didn't want that um, but so how, this commercial it's like so they show the guy getting mugged uh, and he's bleeding from his head, and then they cut to an image of J.B. Pritzker and Lori Lightfoot. Why do they throw Lori Lightfoot? I know, I think I know the answer, but April, I need to know your, what, Lori Lightfoot has got nothing to do with this, plus she's probably, from people like April's point of view, a little too conservative, and uh, here she is being used in this commercial to rile up opposition. So there's a lot of symbols going on here. What's going on here with the throwing Lori Lightfoot in the middle of this? Well, I don't know. I say throw her under the bus every day. I can't stand her. But um, <laughs> they threw her in there because she's a symbol of crime being out of control in Chicago. And so they're going to use her saying she can't, she can't control her city and align Pritzker with her. They can't control what's happening in the state. So we're going to swoop in and issue some law and order. That's why her image is being used. And, you know, and the vast majority of crime in the state happens in the city of Chicago. Whether Lori Lightfoot is the face of it or another mayor, that's not going to change much because we're the biggest city in the state. But that's what the imagery is about. And she's black and female and lesbian and that doesn't hurt. And so, and she's and in that mind, I mean, and in that vein, is against on or many people in the state hate everything she represents. <laughs> Every single thing. She's black. They hate that. She's female. They hate that. Female in power. That's even worse. That makes her a bitch. And then she's also gay. So, oh God, what is our state coming to if that is who is running the store? Yeah, I mean, I. Like I want to lift that up in the fact that even though I have a lot of issues with the mayor, lots of issues, there. Um, at the end of the day, she still does get an unnecessary and ridiculous amount of hate simply because she's a black woman who's a lesbian, and they darken her face in these ads. 
Um, and we can't discount the fact that J.B. Pritzker and the amount of conspiracy theory language is anti-Semitic as fuck. Um, so you have this Jewish governor and this black woman uh, career mayor, and they are just like the perfect combination for reactionary um, reactionary uh, 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 you know words. <laughs> well, we got a question over here, I think. Yeah? All right, I got a question, and then I got a comment first. Benny, you talk a lot of shit about millennials on your show all the time. And I just want to point out, this is a room full of millennials who paid $14 to look at your old ass. Thank you. And your panel is three millennials. I love millennials. Let's just get that on No, the you don't. Just that just lets you know don't. who's you doing so more promotion. shit, Ben Jarofsky. Park it, buddy. Okay. So... <laughs> you don't look it. You don't millennial. Look it. He's, he's not Gen he's a, Z. He's a, he's a I gen, am millennial. Gen no even, Gen Z person wears sweaters from Target. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So my question, uh, Senator Peters, you pointed out that uh, the shift that allowed this big this big act to get passed, in contradiction to our expectations that shit's only ever going to get worse, right? Uh, was the combination of movement pressure and the mastery of inside baseball in the context of a political moment. Um, I'm wondering if the four of you could reflect on that as a model for uh, systems change and transformation and uh, perhaps expound on uh, other fights in our political landscape that are vulnerable to that sort of pressure in this moment. Vulnerable to the pressure of the, the two. What are the two combined things? Inside baseball and movement pressure. Oh. I, I got an idea. Go ahead. Housing. Ah, I was hoping you'd say that. Housing is where this would act because, for example, I'm getting real nerdy. Um, the Fed raises the interest rates, um, and everyone's like, "Oh, wow, raise interest rates. They're going to make everybody unemployed. Knock down inflation. Uh, this might work." Uh, but it also means that for people who bought a home with three percent or less uh, interest rates, well, they're never going to sell their home. For example, I bought a home with my brand new wife, and I said, "You know what? We're never going to leave because <laughs> these interest rates are never going to be this low." And uh, I don't care what your uh, dad says. This is this is great. Um, and uh, and but at the same time, why would? If you were to buy, to buy a home, you're not going to get nearly the money that you need. It's going to be a high interest rate. So someone who might get a $150,000 home compared to someone who gets a $300,000 home might actually pay more money on their mortgage for the $150,000 home. So that's just home buying pressure. So we have home buying issues. And even if we build more housing, the interest rate concern is something to keep an eye out, even though that's an inflationary pressure. Then we have the rental crisis at the same time. So it's, it's a multifold thing. A, you put all this pressure on people who are working class. You create an eviction machine. I think, Maya, you did something about Pangea. That's a good example of this, right? You create this machine at the lower end, and even at the higher end, those people can't move out anyway. They're, they're going to be renting. So you literally have a, a bunch of pressures on working class people who have already too high of rent, uh, have no support, no, you know, very few laws 
have to actually back them up. And you also have this pressure of people who can't leave renting to maybe get a quote-unquote starter home as the boomers had it in the 50s. And so I think that's just a place that with what's happening in the world um, is a crisis that is just waiting to – if the organization is there, uh, we could see really transformative um, policies. I mean, California – Get, you guys came for the Safety Act, and now I'm going to talk to you about parking minimums. Um, but uh, California passed a pretty transformational law. But I would, I would, my feeling is housing. I'm going to stop talking. Uh, my obsession, as you know, if you listen to the show, is not hating on millennials. Uh, TIFFs is part of a larger universe, which is uh, the uh, unfair way we fund government. And so to me, TIFFs is just the most obvious example of that. But the whole thing is unfair. And mm -hmm. there was a failed attempt to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And it was we could do a whole show about how poor that campaign was, the fair tax campaign, how the messaging was horrible, how they were susceptible to the same sorts of counterpunch funded by the same, uh, many cases, people uh, to defeat that referendum, how uh, lo local officials ran away from it. Uh, they didn't want to champion it. They didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, and so it turned out that the, the advocates, um, the elected officials who supposedly believed in it, hid under a table from it. It's like a textbook of everything that the Democrats could screw up in order to screw up something that should be theirs. It should be an issue that resonates. And it's not going away. Uh, we have to fund government, whether we like it or not. Uh, whether there's aspects of government you don't like, you still have to fund them. Uh, and we have a huge pension liability that has to be funded. I know we're not here to talk about the phony budget thing that went down yesterday, but I could go on and on, so I'm gonna restrain myself on that phony budget thing, which was such a joke. The notion we're having a robust economy and somehow or other we're heading toward a recession and the mayor calls it a robust economy, which is going to raise more dollars for us. We all know that's not true. We all know we're facing a tax hike. If you own property in the city of Chicago, you probably realize that you can't afford. Your property tax bill that is escalating does not relate or correspond in many cases to the amount of money you make. And uh, that is gonna be a reality. It's gonna further gentrify the city and cause more resistance against property taxes. So we have to figure out a more equitable, smarter, efficient way to raise money uh, to fund government. And I don't know, I'll turn to you on this one um, to think it, if, if though, if there's, no, in this particular case, like if you can think of a theme uh, or a way of bringing those two to, you know, together uh, in the near future, I can't think of one right now. Maybe when I'm taking my walk tonight, it'll occur to me. But uh, I can't think of one right now. But to me, that's the example I would use. I mean, the the failure of the like kind of public information campaign around the fair income tax, like the the kind of vulnerability of that to these like completely ridiculous attacks that basically got a bunch of people to 
vote against this idea, even though it's like the opposite of their best interests, that pales in comparison to the situation we're in when it comes to property taxes. We should all be paying more property taxes. That is like the reality, that is, there is, these people are- Nobody's believing with that one. We pay an absurdly low amount of property taxes and the, and the, the <laughs> anti-property tax sentiment in this country is directly related to this movement that they began in California to freeze property taxes after all the boomers got their houses and then they were like, why are we paying so much in property taxes? We don't need to be paying more in property taxes. So this 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 was a this was like a Reagan era you know, even earlier than that, like starting in the late 70s, this was an active right-wing campaign to get the population to be against the idea that they should be paying more property taxes, which leads to a situation like we have in Cook County, where the levy hasn't changed since like 1993. And Cook County government is the, one of the small, it's like one of the smallest portion of your property tax bills, but it pays for your court system, and that's what pays for your jail. It pays for your, uh, you know, your, your, well, the forest preserves is like a separate thing, but there's like so, that your hospital system, the charity hospital system that takes care of everyone who doesn't have the money to pay private hospitals. Like, this is like public health and public safety is the charge of Cook County government, and they cannot raise their property taxes because it's literally a political third rail, which was made that way by a very active, basically brainwashing campaign that's been going on since the late 1970s. So we wouldn't even be, I mean, yes, we should be having a, 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 a pro, you know, a progressive graduated income tax. The Illinois should probably also be taxing services because it's ridiculous that you pay taxes on every, you know, uh, every, every, every good that you buy, but not on your oil change or your manicure. You know, lots, lots of states all around us are not missing out on that tax revenue. But in addition to that, it should not be a political third rail to talk about common sense, you know, inflation adjusted property tax raises. But it's literally how every single idea in term, related to budget gets shot down. It's like, because we, we all are somehow supposedly on the same page about being against property taxes. So can I just ask, did you visit Europe recently? No, <laughs> I just. <laughs> I think you did, right? I think you. Suddenly, you know, I just, yeah, something, something happened where I just like, wow, why is, why is there just like great transportation and fantastic healthcare and months off for parental leave and like nobody, you know, people are working 35 hours a week and can actually enjoy their retirement. Why, why, why are like two public school teacher household able to like save up enough for retirement to build like some second home in on like in like a beautiful different country on the money that they are receiving just as a pension from their public school jobs after 35 years? I will add, even though I agree with you on most of that, I do. I would say that it, Europe has its. Look at Italy right now, right, and how shaky it is. Le Pen's 
the fact that she's getting over 40% yeah. is nerve wracking. And, you know. He's not running on lowering property taxes, though. I'm not, I, okay. I will say that I am happy. I am proud to pay my property taxes. Wait, tell me. That's what I'm going to say. So, all right. We're not here to discuss property taxes, but long we're down that road. So I'm going to put uh, April Prayer on the spot here. Uh, she said, uh. uh So, do you. Would you. Uh, support a raise, across the board raise in the property tax. <laughs> and then we'll ask Robert Peters. Because uh, <laughs> I, I have to disagree vehemently with you, Maya, on that one. We'll just have to do a whole show on it because I don't want to go down that road. But, man, I, I'll let you I'll pay some of my property tax bill. I'm, I'm going to make a statement that is an agreement, but I, I can say safely. I am a, uh, I, I am a tax-friendly person individually and um, I I I think that is a it is a political third rail and that is a fact and um, I mean right now for me the uh, sponsor of the safety act and ending cash bail I will tell you that I would like to avoid some political third rails for yeah. a little bit because uh, I can't sleep but I am I, yeah I'm not asking anyone to go on the record to about, about their position about raising property taxes all I'm saying is like that's a thing that's what you're talking about that's like that's like a thing that like is like an insider baseball thing and on top of that that's an issue that doesn't even have a movement connected to it but it's it's like a it's a it's a reason for a huge structural deficit in our local government and the reason why we're constantly having having like these irascible financial problems and can't provide decent basic public services. Well, is, is Michael Girardi here by any way? I haven't seen, I can't see because of the lights. Well, we have a, a listener in the show, uh, who, Michael Girardi, and he uh, uh, always writes in and gets upset whenever I have a, um, a guest on. I have many like this, uh, lefties, uh, who are talking about uh, taxing the wealthy. Uh, as a way to raise the money to finance government, to have more progressive taxation, because the point he always makes, and this gets into the third rail element of this, is that there's a wide distrust in general uh, that the Republicans have been very successful at developing over the years against any kind of uh, governmental entity about funding in any way government. Uh, like, it doesn't really get to us. It goes to other people. And he's pointing this out. He, in the area he lives in, there's a lot of people on pensions who somehow or other voted against the fair, you know, the progressive income tax, even though it's their freaking pensions that are at stake here. So it's just to the point of the question, these overwhelming challenges that Democrats and progressives face if they want to do anything that they believe in, like fair uh, criminal justice laws or fair, more equitable ways of funding a government, it's it's overwhelming. Because first of all, the other side will just freaking lie. Mm -hmm. So like we saw in, uh, uh, in the Tribune piece, uh, shame on the Tribune for printing that, uh, and they lie during the fair tax. So it's a challenge. I mean, it's a real challenge across the board. You got another question anywhere? Yeah, uh, okay, so comment that you just uh, hit on uh, that I just need to speak my mind because it's constantly on my mind. Uh, the distrust of, uh, of uh, people in government currently, right? Uh, just a proposal, uh, Senator Peters. Uh, why hasn't anybody done any anti-corruption, like severe, serious anti-corruption? Uh, like, 
legislation in either you know city, county, government, you know, uh, state government. I'm I'm surprised at that since we have such a long history of that. But you can answer that at another time, I guess, because uh, or or just after I ask this question, it's more specific to the bond uh, question. Is it for April? I feel like we haven't gotten yes, a question. Yes, yes, April. April. Okay, I'm gonna let that question go. But uh, but I can answer I, the anti-corruption question because I. You know, like I when I organized to try to get fair elections, that was like almost impossible. Um, the way that we pay some people in government, uh, particularly the state legislator, means that a lot of people literally will take on jobs. And I'm a full-time state legislator, but me and uh, I'm gonna sound like a wife guy. Me and my partner are um, we want to have um, kids, like you know, whether it's adopted or whatever, and all that stuff. And I, you know, the cost of childcare freaks me out because it's so expensive, as someone pointed out to my left. And the the fact, that, like, that's all things that we have to consider. And I also think that creates a variety of different pressures uh, that lead to corruption. I mean, like, fundamentally, the way we do elections in this country is disgusting. The fact that publicly we can't get publicly financed elections—it's so funny how this works. People want less corruption. So you're like, well, publicly finance elections. And then they're like, well, you're corrupt. And so then you're like in the cycle of like, well, we could have publicly financed And they're like, can't trust you with that money. And you're just like, we're in a cycle where we're like, well, I mean, I don't, you know, I, this is where we're at. And you know, like that's, it's, a, it's always the same cycle. I'll tell people like, you know, we should do publicly financed elections. You don't want people to be able to buy elections. And people be like, well, who's gonna take that money? And you're like, well, that's in this state. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so I'll let April take question. So, okay, so I was, uh, you know, I'm an attorney and I did not, like, I couldn't wrap my mind around uh, the bail law reform. I was trying to figure out what the hell a, a non-probational offense was by looking at the code. Couldn't find anything. I rely on my journalists to tell me some of these things because I don't have time, you know, just like everybody else. So, um, April, I was listening to this guy, Jerry Nowicki from Capital News. I don't know what that, I don't, I've never heard of that before, but he's on cranes and he was talking about that this is a controversial thing. Uh, like that non, he mentioned the word non-probatable offense. Uh, and I know that it exists in the, in the, the code, right? In the uh, uh, criminal code uh, or civil procedure somewhere, there's something, some reference to non-probatable offense. So why did that become such a, like such an asterisk there? Uh, and is it bullshit? Does it actually have any truth, or what's the deal with that? And how did it like arise? Uh, you said two different things. Did you did you, did you mean to say non-probationable offense or non-detainable offense? Non-probatable, non-probatable. Okay. Because isn't that wasn't that the the asterisk? No, it's non-detainable offense was the terminology that they used okay. in their little meme. Um, there isn't anything in the code that I'm familiar with. So in this particular act, and I I will say this. Is 746 pages long, the whole act. No, 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 no. I'm saying the safety act is 764 pages long. And it is difficult to research because there, at least I found no link that takes you directly to the pretrial, um, pretrial act. Sorry. So with that being said, I am not familiar. Oh, that's your phone. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> 
There is no term non-detainable offense that I am familiar with in the code that I have ever seen in 23 years of practice in Illinois. So I think that is a phrase that they coined just for purposes of this propaganda campaign to scare people. I think it's a term that they just came up with. Now, what it's going to, how it'll play out, there will be misdemeanor offenses that people will simply be arrested. It'll be a catch and release. They will be arrested. They will be given information about their court date. And this is what hasn't been said either is, whether people pay a bond or whether people get what's called an I-bond now, which is you're released on your own signature recognizance bond, people generally show up to court. No matter how heinous the offense, no matter how much time they're looking at, people come to court. It's almost like this honor system that most people follow. People are not on the lam. Most people do. I probably had one client ever in all the time I practiced who disappeared. Most people come to court. And that is really the whole purpose of a bond in the first place, is to assure that you will appear in court or assure that you are not a threat to the public. And so the way it will play out is there will be low-level nonviolent offenses that people will not be detained on unless they are a flight risk. And then if you stole that little gadget from Home Depot, if you got 10 times that you didn't come to court, guess what? You will still be held in Cook County Jail. You will be detained. So it's really a misnomer to say non-detainable because it doesn't matter what you're charged with. If the judge deems that you are a a, a um, flight risk or you are a safety risk, guess what? You will be waiting in the county jail until your day in court. The way, the best I could track in terms of where this non-detainable offense terminology came from is because what they do spell out in the act is specific offenses that are automatically detention eligible. Again, accusations of offenses that are automatically detention eligible, where there are things that are basically where people pose a threat to public safety or to a specific person. So this is stuff like forcible felonies, which is basically most violent crimes, right? Domestic battery, both misdemeanor and felony. Violations of restraining orders. This is, again, a domestic violence context. Sex crimes. Uh, and gun-related felonies, which uh, this is basically, this, this list that they're circulating, it's like they read that basic overview of what is automatically detention eligible, and then they were like, well, these things were not spelled out, yeah. therefore they are non-detention eligible, uh, non-detainable offenses. That's, that's like, the how I was able to trace it. Um, and non, so the non-probationable part is also, so w one of the things that makes something like a violent forcible felony is that it is non-probationable, which means that you cannot get a probation sentence for it. So these are automatically very serious crimes. So that, there, that this whole thing is just, it's like, yeah, like if you're accused of, kidnapping or armed robbery or an aggravated DUI, you're not just automatically getting out. Um, uh, yeah, this is basically, I mean, what this really is is a list of things that you're unlikely, if you're charged with this, to, 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 be, getting out of, to be getting out of jail pretrial. 
And I think it's also important to remember that the way it works in the court system is that usually they try to stack charges to create plea deals. Um, so one part is you being stuck and being detained. Another part is um, a variety of charges coming from the state try to put you in this position. And then if you've, if you've ever been to a status, like right now, bond hearing, you're like there for like a minute, two minutes. And then you're like, they're like, the judge is like, ah, you know, they look at the bond schedule and they're like, I don't know, you know, 10,000. Um, and um, so the idea is like the state, you know, the state's attorney is going to use their hammer. Like they're not gonna not use their hammer and they're gonna, they're gonna use it because, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure, what is it, 97%? of all people incarcerated, it's like a plea deal. It's, it's mostly all driven by a plea deal, is that right? Is that just right? It's, a, it's an extremely high amount. And so the idea is like they're gonna, the, the state is not gonna resist throwing everything at somebody and that's not gonna happen. Um, and I think this is why uh, for everybody here, um, I know law and order is great, but the less we watch it, uh, the better for all of us. <laughs> Yeah, and just to come back to something April mentioned about um, that, you know, on the side of things that this will actually make things harder for your clients is I think that this issue of gun-related felonies, because tons and tons of people, thousands of people in Cook County every year get charged with gun-related felonies for simply having a gun. And this is a very, very common charge. And as we at Injustice Watch have reported, this has now become, with the, all of the constitutional lawsuits against stop and frisk for drug-related crimes, the way that policing has shifted now is that people get pulled over and the cops use some kind of shady pretext to search their cars, they find a gun in their car, and then people are suddenly facing felony charges over that gun. When there is no usage of that gun, when the person wasn't brandishing the gun, nothing of that nature. Lots and lots of people have guns in their homes, in their cars, lots of people have FOID cards but not concealed carry permits, and in communities where people do not feel they can trust the police to protect them, and they're there's a lot of threats to their safety. Lots of people have guns. Or they may be driving someone's car and not even know that there's a gun there. Yeah. So people in those scenarios, from my understanding of how this is going to work, is they might have a harder road to climb to not end up in jail, even though they are not being charged with a, a, an aggressive act towards any person. They were simply pulled over for for whatever. For, there was like a smell of weed coming from their car, and now suddenly there was like a, a gun in their glove box. Yeah, there was a, a judge in Markham recently. He was joking. We were on a break, and he says, marijuana, the gateway drug to every search in Illinois, meaning it is the reason that every cop gives him who comes in his courtroom because he because the cops know that that's not something that you can prove or disprove with a body camera. So if he walks up to your car and says, I smell the smell of marijuana emanating from this car. And you're like, I don't even smoke weed. So it's your word against his. And who do you think most judges are going to believe? Because most judges are former state's attorneys. And so I, that's the other part of this bill that cracks me up. I, everybody thinks these former state's attorneys are suddenly gone crazy and they're going to let everybody out of jail. You're, you are really smoking. So, so yes. And so, and I I'll say this. So the vast majority of new cases, I don't know the statistics, I just know anecdotal experiences. When I go to the prelim call, which is basically where you go before you're formally charged, and the last time I was at, it was at 111th Street, the sheriff in the room said, how many of you are here for gun cases? 
every hand in the room except for two went up. But I'll add this. And so like she, just like you said, they're just riding around. They get stopped for blowing a stoplight or rolling through a stop sign or not putting their turn signal on. The cop says it smells like weed. They tear the car up. They find a gun. But get this. The vast majority of calls I personally get are for legal gun owners who are now charged with felonies because they were carrying wrong. They have FOIA cards, no concealed carry, and either they've applied for their FOIA, maybe they've gone to the range, maybe they've taken the class, maybe they apply for the class, maybe they pay for the class, maybe they wait for the card. Either way, they don't have the plastic physical card saying that they have a concealed carry, and guess what? They are facing felony charges for carrying a loaded gun under their seat or in their console. And everybody says the same thing. I, I carry it because I live in a bad neighborhood, or I carry it because I need it for protection, or I carry it because I need it at my job, and I'm just driving from home to my job, and they stop me on the way. So the majority of these people are legal. They're not gangbangers. They're not carjackers. They're not drug dealers. They are They're the regular carjackers. Huh? They're afraid of carjackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're afraid of carjackers, and that's why they have a gun with them. They're realtors. They're bankers, they're whatever, and they didn't pay that additional $150 that the state wants from them for that second card, and then pay another $200 to go take a class, and they're carrying their gun, but they're carrying it wrong, and then those who have concealed carry, guess what? They're carrying it wrong, too, so they're getting busted for misdemeanor charges, and if they're found guilty, they'll never be able to carry again. These are the vast majority of cases, and now those people will be going before judges, and judges may say, hey, I'm gonna go ahead and release you on electronic monitoring, or I'm gonna give you a bond, or I'm gonna hold you. We don't know, because we haven't heard, we haven't talked about that at all. We don't know what these judges are gonna do. And there will be some judges downstate who are not gonna follow this law at all. Well, that's the, what you just said, by the way, great riff, but what you just said, uh, there's so much irony here. I don't even know where to start, but like the gun rights people who are essentially the same folks uh, backing this uh, damn prof campaign do not operate in a universe where they're randomly pulled over by police officers and one could be, thing could lead to a next and suddenly they're facing felony charges because they're violating uh, our gun laws. This is a Chicago thing that you just described, just like, or kind of, or. This is a color thing. Okay. They don't yeah, want okay. black people yeah. to have guns. Yeah. Okay. That's why we have Ballot gun laws point. in the United States <laughs> to keep black and indigenous people from carrying weapons. That is where the gun laws came from. So they do not want guns in the hands of someone who looks like me. Let's be very clear. This isn't about Chicago or downstate or Peoria or Rockford. This is about someone like me having a gun in their hand, regardless of profession, regardless of background. They don't want me to have it. Well put, but uh, my point is the same one. They're not going to. They're not getting the, the the people will not be arrested who are potentially violating this law. Uh, a white guy downstate will not be getting arrested for violating this law. So I think we need to wrap up before Timmy gets too nervous. Uh, it's 7:45, and they got a ne oh, their it's next a great, show to prep. Great, great job, but uh, why don't we have a round of applause for our guests? Um, we will also stick around, mill around a bit, so if you've got more questions, if you guys don't mind people approaching you, please go ahead. Uh, so thank you so much for coming out. Just a quick shout out to please follow us on social media.
And the next first Tuesday is actually November 1st, which doesn't conflict with election day. So we're planning to have a show, and uh, we'd love to see you all back. So follow us on all our socials so you can know what exactly is going on with that show. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Senator Peters. Thank you, April, for, for coming out and chopping it up with us. Thank you. Thank you.